prayer this morning. J.D., would you do this? Dear Heavenly Father, we, we come before you now grateful for all the many blessings that you've so richly and bountifully shared down upon us. Thank you especially at this time for this opportunity that we have to come together in fellowship and to share you, Father, to, to sing praises to your name, uh, to speak about you, and, and now to study your word. Uh, we ask that you would be with us as we study this book of Malachi. Uh, open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth that you have in your word. Uh, please let that truth rest on our hearts and penetrate it uh, so that we can then live out uh, our lives the way that you would have us to live them. Uh, please be with Gary and, and help him to express the things that he has prepared. Uh, and please be with all of us in our lives as we strive to to better serve you day by day, Father. You're just such an amazing God toward us. We don't we don't recognize that enough. We don't praise you enough for that. We love you, Father, and we praise you. It's through your blessed Son's name we pray. Amen. Alright, uh, Malachi is the uh, last book in our region of the Bible, and probably at least the last prophet that was written. Uh, most everyone agrees with that. Probably written uh, a little bit after the time of Nehemiah. There are several things that go together to make us think that. It's not a critical thing that that be the case, but I think it probably is. And there are uh, several things that we're going to see about Malachi that are a little bit different than other prophets. And I think by the end of the time, you'll kind of have a distinctive feel for the way Malachi communicates. But look at the first verse as kind of the introduction to this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. That's not a lot of introduction. Basically, he's stressing what? Lord. Yes. This is God's message. This is God's oracle. An oracle usually means a judgment message or a sentence against them. So there's a judgment message that's God's word to Israel and Malachi is the one that God has chosen to deliver. And anybody know what the name Malachi means? My messenger. And that's what uh, he was. Now, you would not normally think so much about the messenger as you would the message. And there's no real attention given to the person of Malachi in this book. This is not a book about the messenger. It's a book about the message he delivers. And so we don't know anything about his background, his genealogy, his hometown, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't really matter. He's got a message that is the word of the Lord, and that's what we're going to look at. Anything you want to say by way of introduction and the first verse of Malachi? Shane? Some translations translate the word bird instead of oracle. Is there any meaning to that at all? Well, it, that, how you translate it is kind of a uh, question mark. It, burden is fine if you understand burden in the sense of a, a heavy message. That's the idea. It's a message of judgment. Often when we think of a, a, a message from God, we think of, of saying like an oracle or something like that. Uh, but, but burden, if you understand that concept, is, is good as well. All right, would somebody read then, two to five? I have loved you, said the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, said the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved him. But Esau I have loved And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though uh, Edom has said, we have been impoverished, uh, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have a nation forever. Your eye shall see, and you shall say, The Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Okay, very good. So, God makes the affirmation here in Malachi 1-2, I have loved you. Now think about the statement that God is love. You know, where do you find that? First John 4. Yeah, 1 John 4. Find that in the New Testament. 
A lot of people think, well, God in the New Testament is God of love. In the Old Testament, he was a, you know, severe God. Well, that's not true. I mean, here, God just flat out says, I loved you. God was a God of love anywhere you see him. He's also a God who punishes in Old and New Testament. So, God loved them. But typically in Malachi, what we're going to see, when God makes some affirmation, the people question it. And so here they say, how have you loved us? Have you ever thought, I don't really think God loves me? You know, I don't see any evidence of that. You know, I think that's what they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking about difficult things they've gone through. How's God loved us? Look at what happened to us. Have you ever felt that? So they're questioning whether or not God really loves them or not. And God says, all right, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? You know, you had that relationship between Jacob and Esau. What's the relationship between Jacob and this people? Who is he speaking to? Yeah. When did the Israelites get their name? Israel. Yeah. Who was who? Jacob. Jacob, yeah. So, you know, he's saying, all right, the descendants of Esau, you know, Esau and Jacob were brothers. Now, the descendants of Esau were who? The Edomites. The Edomites. Now, look at how God dealt with the Israelites versus how he dealt with the Edomites. He says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Now here's what God had done. You look at the difference between Israel and Edom. Look at the judgments God has brought upon Esau, and how devastating they are. Now Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. But God says, they may build, but I will tear down. You know, God is not going to allow Edom to be able to recover. Now that's different from what God did with Israel. Yes, God punished Israel. Yes, they went through some hard things. But God didn't permanently destroy them like he did the Edomites. Can you see the difference? Can you see what it's meant for Israel that God loves them? So that's one way of God showing them his love. You may think I don't love you, but look at how different I'm treating you than I'm treating the Edomites that I will never allow to recover. And he says in verse 5, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. What does he mean by that? The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. What, what was God's plan and purpose for Israel? Christ. Christ. And what was his purpose for Christ? Save the world. So, through Israel, God intended to extend his blessings and glory way beyond the borders of Israel. Remember what he told Abraham? What did he tell Abraham? So the idea was that God chose Israel to be able to be a blessing to all the nations through Jesus. So here Israel has been chosen and blessed with the opportunity to really be the source of blessing and spiritual life to everyone in the world. The Edomites are a dead end. You know, there's no future for them. Do you see that God has loved Israel and hated Edom? Comments or questions on those first five verses? Seems a little harsh about Edom. Yes. Does that bother you? Yes. Well, how do you deal with that? You know, usually, probably for the Israelites, 
they were like, bravo. <laughs> that wouldn't have bothered them. Um, it also appears that he just randomly, you know, the way it's reading here, it sounds like well, I just, you know, hated one and loved the other one for a reason. Right. Which, depending on how you look at, I mean, then you have a definition or what it means to hate or how he hated him. So. Well, in this context, how did he hate him? Yeah, we say that, but I'm not sure I would say that. I mean, is that what you think when you read verse 3 and 4? Doesn't, you know, well, he just loves Jacob more. Now, sometimes I understand we can use love and hate in kind of a contrast, but here, what does his hatred of Edom do? Destroys it. Destroys it. I think, I don't think he means just, I just don't love Edom as much as I love you guys. I think he hated Esau. And he brought devastation upon them. So is it right for God to hate Esau? I'm going to venture yes. <laughs> There's always got to be somebody who defends the Lord. You know. It's, it's hard to vote against God. But, you know, how could we say it was right for God to hate Esau? We don't know all that happened. I uh, yes. You, the Edomites were known for violence. You have in Amos uh, 1 and then verse 11 it says that he will not revoke uh, punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword because, while well, he stifled his compassion. Yes. And do you remember the whole book in the Bible about Edom? Obadiah. Obadiah. Who talked about how wicked, cruel, prideful, and all that Edom was. In fact, in the Bible, I believe Edom, because of their behavior, is almost a synonym of an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people. Uh, here's a good passage just to show you the Edomite attitude. It's Psalm 137.7. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. If you're not looking at that, that's the R-A-Z-E kind of raise it, not the R-A-I-S-E. What does it mean to R-A-Z-E something? Bring it down. Wipe it out. That's what they said about Jerusalem. That was the cruelty the pride and, and the viciousness of Edom. Edom was always against everything God did. Well, you know, is it right for God to punish people who are wicked? Yes. Is it right for him to hate them? Yes. Yeah, it sure is. So, it might have, you, you, when you first read, I love Jacob and I hated Esau, you might have thought, well, that's just arbitrary. You know, God was just picking favorites. But actually, when he punishes the Edomites like this, it's because of the Edomite wickedness. It's not just because of some arbitrary, you know, poor ordination that I'm just going to, you know, punish the Edomites. So, I think God had every right to do that. The amazing thing isn't that. I mean, if you were God, you had a rebel nation who will never submit to you. Wouldn't you punish him? Wouldn't you destroy him? Wouldn't you wipe him out? The amazing thing is that he loved Israel. That's really the amazing thing. That he showed his kindness and his grace for them. And that he used them as the conduit of blessing for the whole world. That's what's amazing. Other thoughts and comments? Yes, Russ. I could be wrong about this, but from what I understand, basically Esau's first couple of mistakes were just kind of like dumb moves that he wasn't thinking about. And then when he found out the consequences, he didn't handle it the right way. Like, I think that's how it began. Like, he left the bitterness and things like that. Does that... That's how I always think about it, I guess I'm seeing if that's... Yeah, well, Esau himself was an interesting fellow. I mean, neither Esau nor Jacob were just outstanding characters. But I think you can see that their flaw was in different areas. Jacob, what would you say about Jacob's, 
you know, main kind of sin? What was Jacob's constant downfall? Deceit. Yeah, deceit, manipulation, trying to swindle God's blessings by hook or by crook. You know, uh, that that he was he was a heel grabber. That's what Jacob means, and he was. You know, he he you know it's kind of like uh, you know just. Uh, trying to take advantage of anybody to get ahead. Now Esau was a little different. What would you say about Esau's downfall? Stupidity. <laughs> well, it was stupid. Pride. Maybe he didn't dare trust. I don't think we zeroed in on what I see in Esau yet. Yeah, he didn't value and appreciate what was really important. Jacob did. He just tried to get it in stupid ways. But, you know, for Esau, it didn't seem to matter to him. You remember when he sold the birthright for some food? Like, well, if I'm starved to death, what good's the birthright going to do? I mean, do you realize what the birthright meant? You know, the guy who's got the birthright gets twice as much stuff when his dad dies as the other one. Well, there's only two sons. So that meant the guy with the birthright gets two-thirds, the guy without it gets one-third. What's the difference between two-thirds and one-third? Very good at fractions. Yeah. One, yeah, at least you know that. One-third. Now Jacob was, or uh, their father Isaac was a wealthy man. Can you imagine selling a third of Isaac's estate for some stew? <laughs> now that is the epitome of what? Stupidity. <laughs> That's more expensive than Starbucks. <laughs> 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 what, what do you see in Esau that sometimes you see in people today? Stupidity. Short-sighted. Short-sighted. This is short-term thinking gone to see. You know, all he could think about was filling his tummy right then and totally ignoring future weighty blessings. You ever been like that? I feel like I want this right now. Never mind the consequences tomorrow. Because right now I feel like this. Well, that was Esau. You know, Jacob valued the blessings and connived to get them. Esau didn't appreciate them. He didn't value them. I think that's what you see in Esau. He was more of a day-to-day guy. You know, Jacob was deeper. But he was a scoundrel. Both of them were, were bad. But I think here when he says that he hates Esau and he loves Jacob, that we're not just talking about God's attitude toward those two people. You know, Esau actually turned out to have uh, a lot of uh, possessions. And he was fairly successful in his life. And, and you know, they, they conquered that territory of Edom. And, and his family, you know, uh, were, were prosperous and strong and powerful and all that. What we're really talking about is God's hatred for Esau's people over a period of time. And it was hundreds of years later when God brings this devastating judgment upon Edom after Esau had had hundreds of years of track record of pride and violence against their brother. And when he loves Jacob, it's not so much what God's just doing for Jacob himself, but what he's doing for Israel, the descendants of Jacob. So I think that's really how we ought to see that statement, not so much a personal attitude God had toward those two characters. Other comments and questions? Good good discussion. Okay, that's how he begins. Now... You know, the people are just a mess. You can imagine that from this. I don't even think God loves them, just because they've gone through some hard things. Malachi is really going to expose the failings of the people. And wow, (coughs) there's a lot of stuff in here, and uh, a lot of it's really practical for us. The first group he mostly looks at, and this is going to be a large part of the book, is the priests. Now, the people come in for some criticism, too. 
in this section, but I think you ought to see this as more the criticism of the priests. And let's see what he criticizes them for, verse 6 to 14. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now you will not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery, and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hands, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. Really a practical section. He says, a son honors his father, a servant his master. Where's my honor, God says. You know, I'm the father, I'm the master. You aren't honoring me, priests, who despise my name. And what do the priests say? How have we dishonored you? How have we disrespected you? You know, that's the typical thing in Malachi. God will say to them, Oh, how did that No, that's not, that's not true. You know, they're questioning that affirmation. Don't you see how sinful attitudes often are hidden even to the sinner? He doesn't see himself the same way God does. Ever wondered what God sees when he looks at us? It may not be the same thing we see in ourselves. And so, you know, he says, you've dishonored me, you've despised my name, and they say, how have we done that? Well, he tells them how they did that. How did they do it? They defiled his altar. Yes, how did they defile his altar? They gave sacrifices that weren't ready to be sacrificed. Exactly! They lowered the standard of the sacrificial animals. And they offered things that were unworthy of God. Now, can you see why the priests might have wanted to lower the standard of animals that would be accepted on the altar? How would that help them? Because then they used to be good animals as either political capital or sell them. Yeah, they, they take advantage of the animals, Russ. Yeah, what did the priests get? Well, when the sacrifices were offered, in many of the sacrifices, they got parts of the animal. Now, if they lower the standards, what's going to happen to the quantity of sacrificed animals? Yeah, yeah if it doesn't cost the offerer so much, he'll be more willing to give it. And so by lowering the standards and accepting some blemished animals and things like that, then, you know, more people offer, the priests get more parts of animals, and they eat better. 
or perhaps they do sell them and, and uh, increase their income or whatever. They say they aren't defiling the altar. They say they don't despise God's name, but actions speak louder than words. He says when you present the blind for sacrifice and the lame and the sick, is it not evil? I mean, would you try to give to your governor those animals? Would you pay your taxes in blind and lame and diseased animals? Do you reckon the governor would accept that? Doubt it. You know, no other human beings would not accept it. You know, they would see these, these animals are worthless. You're just trying to give me the animals you're trying to call out of your herd. Well, why do you think that God would accept those? Do you see the difference? Do we ever do that? What would be some examples? When we try to give effective animals to God's shame. Yeah, I think for me, the fact that I'm really good at giving God time when I've got nothing to do. I'm really good at, you know, studying and praying when I'm bored out of my mind and laying in my bed and there's nothing but a Bible laying next to me. Um, I'm a lot worse at sacrificing the time that I want to spend it with, with people or doing things that I like to do. Um, you know, I want to do what's convenient for me. And that's the way, I mean, Romans 12, 1 says you should be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Um, the thing for me to do is to sacrifice any time that I want. Do you choose as your Bible study time the time when your favorite TV show is on so you can watch it while you're studying the Bible? <laughs> I reckon anybody's ever done that. Or things equivalent to that. That's a good point. What would be other illustrations of offering to God defective animals? Worshiping half-heartedly. Sure. Yeah. If on our worship... We don't really put ourselves into it. We, you know, are just, uh, you know, kind of lackluster. We don't really care. Good point. What else? What would be some other examples for us? Doing something at the last minute. Not preparing, not being ready, not doing it very well. Yeah. If I would do that with my parents, even if I did a decent job, they still weren't very happy that I put it off to the last minute because it said something about why I cared about it. It does. Yeah. I mean, think about this. A lot of you are in school. Do you, do you give more effort to study and preparing for your school classes or your Bible classes? Well, that's a good illustration. More like the giving of your means. Oh, yeah. Just giving small amounts, giving things that don't really matter to you. And you can think of a lot of examples. Keep thinking about that as he, he's, as he explains. You know, you don't expect that God is going to bless you if what you're giving is not what it ought to be. He says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you. He wishes they just shut the door on the temple. That's, that's, That's all that matters to them. He said, you know, I'd rather not even accept anything than accept these leftovers, these cruddy animals that you're trying to give me. Do we ever realize that sometimes God, you know, is just really dishonored by what we do for Him? Because it shows such a lack of respect and a lack of concern. You know, we don't really care about God. Mark reminds me of the church in Laodicea. He, Christ would have preferred that they be hot or cold, but because they wanted to be one or they wanted a mixture of both. He was going. They were going to be speed out of the mouth. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. Sometimes we have more passion and intensity for some stupid video game than we have for the Lord. You know, sometimes we care more about 
you know, some sport or politics or a whole bunch of stuff that don't really even matter than we do for the Lord. We know all about those things. We care about them. We talk to everybody about them. You know, sometimes we will do more to try to promote some athletic team than we do to try to promote the Lord. And things like that. Does that show us anything about how much we care about the Lord? When we give Him less time, we give Him less enthusiasm, we give Him less publicity, we work for Him less. You know, I mean, we're excited about going to a ball game and we're sort of, you know, discouraged about the night. Gotta go and sing some more songs and, you know, pray some more prayers and things like that. Look at what they 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 said in uh, verse thirteen. We'll come back to a couple of things here. But but the the priests were saying, "My how tiresome it is!" And you disdainfully sniff at it. Can you see these priests that just were so bored? You know, they are just going through their duties. You know, killing the animals and cutting them up put them on the altar. They'd so much rather be doing something else. It's just so hard for them when they're just, you know, having to, to go through all this. It's just discouraging to them. Is that what we do? There's a great application of that. I think preachers and teachers and, you know, people who are leading in worship sometimes are like that. You know, I, I've seen, this bugs me, I've seen people like, oh, I have to leave the songs again. You know, and things like that. Why would we do that? Now, I'm not saying leading songs is, you know, the big thing. But I'm saying any service we perform for God, shouldn't we do with enthusiasm and with zeal? And sometimes I'm like that. It's like, you know, I've got to preach a sermon. I've got to teach a Bible class or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah. We shouldn't feel that way. We ought to want that. Now, I understand sometimes we don't want to display ourselves. We may not be, you know, wanting to, to take over something. But I'm saying, you know, we just get to where, oh, I wish I didn't have to do that. You know, and, and that's the way the priests work. They didn't really want to have to do their duties. Can you imagine that if you didn't think about the Lord, those things would be boring? Can you imagine slaughtering all those animals? And put them on the altar day after day after day after day after day. But they might get weary with that. What would be the corrective to that? How, how could they do better with that? What would keep it from being tiresome? Actually, keep in mind the fact that they're performing a, performing a service to God. Exactly! It all makes a difference in whether or not you really think about the Lord and you understand His greatness. Or to you, it's just like a slaughterhouse operation. Thoughts and comments about what we're saying. JD. Uh, it seems that this kind of this back and forth that you see in Malachi of, of God bringing up some sort of a sin with them and then they ask, well, what are you talking about? What have we done that? It, it's, it's relatively unique to Malachi, but I was, it, it's also found in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus there describes the judgment day and he's saying, you never came and visited me when I was sick or in prison or, or clothed me or fed me. And the sinners there saying, well, when, when the Lord did we do that? It's not that they don't recognize his title as Lord. It's that they didn't have a regard for the things that he wanted them to do. And the same thing here. You know, it's not that they don't you know, call God by his name. It's not that they don't you know, at least show up for the service. It's that they're not putting the regard into it that they ought to. And in that way, they're guilty of what Esau is in, in the first five verses. It's, it's, not, it's not a utter hatred of God. It's a disregard. Sure. It's, they, don't, they don't put the, the emphasis or the recognition into the things of God. That yeah, that's a big thing in the prophets, isn't it? We've seen that over and over again. Just a lack of, of respect for God in shoddy worship. And in just 
no real excitement and zeal for doing what God wants us to do. Trying to get by with the least amount and the least quality we can get by with. Just shows you we don't really care much about God. We do despise his name when we do that. You know, we don't think about the fact God will know it wasn't top rate. And we really just want to do as little as we can get by with in serving God. That is a bad attitude for God. Look at verse 11. From the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations. Isn't that a shame the Gentiles are going to do better than the Jews? Among the nations, they're going to respect me. That's an amazing statement. They will honor the Lord better than the Jews do. And this is also a remarkable statement just for the time period. This is saying what? In in verse 11, when he says that in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. What does that imply? That everyone in the world there's going to be people following God. Yes. But now, in in the Old Covenant, weren't there Gentiles that followed God? Yeah. We called them proselytes. They were converted to Judaism, and they came to the temple and offered the sacrifices and all that. But what's this saying different? That's exactly right! This is going to be where they are! In every place, they're going to offer the incense and the sacrifices. In the Old Covenant, it was wrong to burn incense, it was wrong to offer sacrifices any other place than Jerusalem, after the temple was established in Jerusalem. God had chosen one place for his name to dwell, Deuteronomy 12, and you couldn't offer sacrifices lawfully outside of that place. But this is saying, you'll be able to do it wherever you want. The place won't matter anymore. And the Gentiles are going to do it with their whole heart. Whereas the Jews here are despising the Lord's name. So, he, uh, he's really down on Verse 13 and 14. Bringing defective animals. Just don't do that. Because, verse 14, I am a great king and my name is feared among the nations. If God is a great king, he deserves great service. Great worship. Great dedication of ourselves. We need to think more about the greatness of God. Mm-hmm. Comments and questions on chapter 1. Patrick? You know, this this really preaches to us so much. I mean, uh, I talk to guys who just aren't excited about worship, and they blame it on, you know, this person or that person not being excited. And But the thing that I'm coming to recognize more than... When we're worried about our worship not being exciting, it's probably because we're not excited. You know? We're too caught up in being excited about the next song we're going to sing instead of we serve the Almighty God. If we put our focus on I serve the greatest being in existence, then that's an exciting worship. It doesn't matter who's in the pulpit. It doesn't matter who's leading the song. It doesn't matter what song you're singing. If you understand that you're worshiping the Holy God in heaven, you know, that's exciting. And we really need that so much. Amen. You know, is Bible study boring to you? Well, if it, it is if the God who wrote it doesn't mean much to you. You ever gotten bored? Ah, this is so out of uh, our era. Have you ever gotten bored reading a letter from your girlfriend? You know, these days you don't write letters. Yeah. Have you ever gotten bored reading a text from your girlfriend? Yeah. Guess that's our modern. Uh, you know, have you ever gotten bored reading a text from mom? You know, see, it depends on what you think about the person who's writing it. You know, what about praying? You know, have you ever gotten bored because you know. You're going to have to spend some time with your girlfriend. You know, it's terrible. You know, 
I mean, it all depends on what you think about the person. You're excited to talk to somebody you really want to talk to. You're excited to hear from somebody you really want to hear from. If you don't think much about God, it's easy for those things to be boring. Comments? Gary? Yes. I want to look back at what Ren Shea mentioned the verse in Romans 12. One. Uh, I want to point out, you know, he's blowing out of the translation, but he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies of being sacrificed, fully acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. I was listening to a uh, sermon in my car the other day on CD, that, and the guy, it's funny, I don't know who this preacher is, but, um, but he, uh, he mentioned the, um, the reasonable service. He started off his sermon with asking everyone to stand up in the, in the audience, and, and everyone stood up, and then he said, all right, now I want you to go outside and do 50 laps around the building, you know, and no one moved from that point. And he's like, okay, y'all can sit down now, you know, and he's like, he was illustrating, he said, how, is, how come it's that everyone stood up, I asked you to stand up, but no one went outside and ran around the building, you know, and he was pointing out the, you know, the reasonable service, it was reasonable for an them to stand up but not to run laps, and he was, he was making that point that, uh, that God doesn't ask us to do anything more than what's reasonable, you know, when we're worshiping him, it's, it's, and when we live for him, I mean, he doesn't ask us to do anything beyond what, you know, is like something so difficult, you know what I mean, and so, and so everything that we can do for the Lord is reasonable, and uh, I just really like to that, that, that preacher pointed that out, but, uh, so, I don't know, you know, and, and since I heard that, I'm like, you know, I can do anything that God asks me to do, you know, and I should. And it all depends on how you look at God. You know, how many of you, I mean, you like different things. How many of you like to watch pro football? That's pretty good, all right. Are you really hoping that the football game won't go into overtime? That'd be so bad. You had to watch another hour and minutes of that. You know, is that what you're hoping for? You really wish they'd cut down. It's just so long. Is that the way you feel about it? You know, but how do we feel about worship and study and things? See, it all depends on how we look at those things. As whether or not we're excited or whether or not we're bored. You know, you, you really, are you really thinking, you know, that you wish they wouldn't make a sequel to your favorite movie. You know, you have to watch another one of those. No, if you really like it, man, you want to see it. You know, have you ever seen a movie more than once? Yeah. How often have you seen some movies? Hundreds of times. How many? Twenty or thirty. Twenty or thirty. So the rest of you have seen movies that many times? Seventy or eighty. Yeah, I'm getting some guesses. There's a lot of great Matt? I've done Well, good grief, is not boring, did you? I mean, how long does it take you to figure out how it's going to end? <laughs> what a, why do I do that? My son watched Hoosiers. We had it on YouTube. Watch Hoosiers? I'll tell you, if he watched it once, he watched it at least 100 or 150 times. Probably more than that. I mean, he had the timing down. He could recite the whole script exactly like it was done. Why in the world would you watch anything 100 or 150 times? Because you like it? He liked it! <laughs> if you like God... You're going to be bored reading the Bible for the 100th or the 150th time. I had a guy tell me just the other day. <laughs> he said, well, he said, he said, look, I've read the Bible three times. I know what it says. It's boring to read it. You know what that told about him? It told that he didn't really love God. You know, he wasn't really eager for the Lord. It wasn't that the Bible's boring. It's boring if you don't love God. You don't respect Him. You don't think about Him being great. But you never thought that favorite movie of yours was boring the fourth time around. So that's, it's all on how we look at God. We look at God and are impressed and awed by Him. You just can't get enough of Him. But if you don't think much of Him, then anything that has to do with Him is boring, and you want to do as little of it as you can, and be as distracted as you can while you're doing it. 
Other comments? I always think that like our half-hearted worship, like not only is it not helping the cause of Christ, but it's actually hurting. And I think a lot of times we don't think about that, like, well, we're here, so, you know, that's something. But it's like, because other people are looking at us, and if we're not loving God like we should, they're like, well, I mean, it's not that important to them, so... There's no doubt, you know, our lack of enthusiasm is going to be contagious. You know, other people are going to feel that and see that. And it's going to be a discouragement. But more than that, it's just dishonors the Lord all the way around. I don't think we think of what heaven is going to be like. It's, you know, it's not about entertaining us in heaven either. I mean, the pictures in, in Revelation are that you're worshiping, praise singing praises to God. Continue. Is that what you want? Does that sound exciting? I get to be with God. Or is it that, man, you know, these popular stupid, stupid ideas, well, you know, in heaven, I bet the fishing will be better, or whatever. Yeah. Like, oh, good night. I mean, it's like a, it's like a woman about to get married, and she's thinking about, Man, I think that house will move. I'll get to move into will be a whole lot neater than my parents' house. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> you know, whoa, uh, man, what are you doing marrying a woman like that? She's more excited about the house than she is about you. Or are you more excited about thinking these stupid ideas of entertaining things you could do in heaven than being with God and getting to serve and worship and honor Him? I don't have much uh, idea that there'll be, you know, fishing in heaven. But if there was, and we had the chance to be with God instead of go fishing, which would we want to do? I mean, honestly, I think so often we think so little of God. You know, we know what the right answer is supposed to be. But honestly, man, if it was good fishing, that'd be a whole lot more exciting than being with the Lord. And that just tells you where we're at. They despised the Lord's name. They didn't love God. They didn't see him as a great God. They didn't care about him. It was just a job to them. They had the God. Do you see why God rejecting their worship? He said, forget it. Close the door to the temple. I don't want that kind of worship. Other thoughts? Yes. I used to work with a man that uh, knew one of the ones that helped me. He, every day, he would just, that's all he talked about, just every day. It's like, you know what I like about God? And he would just, I mean, at first it was it was tiresome because I didn't understand. But but now that I have been baptized and I look back and I still talk to him, he's like, you know, call me. I, you know, I don't want to lose contact because he's like, we're family now. It's like, we're, we're brothers in Christ and friends for life. And, and I want that. Because every day he would he would praise God. Like every time I would I would say that something like nice happened to me, he'd be like, Praise the Lord. It's like good job. yeah. And just I had a couple days with him after I got baptized. Those days were the best days that we had together because he just he busted out his Bible and we just had Bible study right there in, in our truck while we were driving around and it was it was encouraging just to see how how much it was affecting him on that greatest scale because he would it would be the most horrible day work wise but it was the greatest day we ever had working together because we were sitting there having Bible study together the entire time talking about the Lord just praying and worshiping and there was nothing better. I just I look at him and I admire the the fact that he's got such passion and such zeal for God. You know, I just I want that. Amen. May we all want that. If we could only come to realize the joy and excitement there is in that, it's so much better than the stupid empty stuff the world offers us. Say. <clears throat> I think some of the songs we sing, and if we sing the songs in the right, in the right way, okay, but songs like, you know, have a mansion over the hilltop, or things like that, it's like we're so focused on, I'm going to get a mansion, 
or the gates are of gold or, or whatever. That we forget why we're going. Yeah. And it's got it. I don't know, but we, we talked this out forever. He was like, what's a Christian's purpose? And he said, well, a Christian's purpose is to get to heaven. And I said, why do you want to get to heaven? Well, because it's, you know, it's a place of rest. We can you know, enjoy heaven. And I was like, the reason we want to go to heaven is because of the Lord. Because we want to be in the presence of the Lord. And if we're just living this life just so we can go to heaven, for me, that's not a good enough motivation. If the Lord isn't there, I've got no motivation to go. Um, you know, this life we're a lot of time to think we think it's, it's about us, like we've been talking about. It's about what we can get out of the Lord instead of what we can give to the Lord. Why do we want to go to heaven? Why do we want to do these things? Is it for the Lord or for our own selfish reasoning? And if it is, we're, we're not going to last long because selfish reasoning is only, the only motivation for so long. Well, yeah, when Paul talked about dying, he wanted to die and be with the Lord. That's what excited him. Patrick? Uh, I wonder how many people got to heaven, and the first thing they said was, wow, that gave us early. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no one goes to heaven and says, wow, my dwelling place is so huge. You know, it's, it's, when we think of it that way, it's ridiculous. We go to heaven because the presence of the Holy God is in front of our faces continually, you know. And... I, I entirely agree with saying we really just need to want to go to heaven because God's there. And we need to recognize heaven is anywhere that God is. So that affects how we think right now. We are excited to worship and serve God now because we really love Him. Because we see His greatness. And they didn't. Other thoughts on chapter 1? Yes, Russ. I wonder how many local congregations would get the exact same response from God. Because, I mean, when we get a group of people who are pretty excited together, we all get more excited. Yes. But when you're a group with, you know, the people who aren't as excited and, oh, they're not thinking about God, and let all that get to you, I wonder how many groups... You know, within I hear all sorts of things about how great Southern Indiana is with you know the churches and everything like that. But I wonder how many of those would get the exact same like response. Yeah, sometimes we can uh, flatter ourselves a little mm-hmm. more than the Lord would. That's exactly right. I mean, it ought to be something where we we want to give the best we can to God in our worship collectively and just in our service in general in every part of our life we we love God we want to honor him other thoughts uh, I've heard it put that you know, God has blessed us with free will and if we take the attitude of, uh, of these priests here in Malachi oh what a weariness it is you know God isn't going to then subject us to heaven where we're going to have to, have to worship <laughs> Him and praise him all the time. You know, he won't. He won't put us through that. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good points. Absolutely. Anything else? Good. Good discussion. Well, that's not all he has to say to the priests. This is just round one. Look at round two, chapter two, verses one.